So let's dig in. We're going to finish off this series. Man, my Southern is coming back. (laughs) Three years of hard work. (laughs) Comes comes right back. Authentic, the DNA of real disciples. And uh, we won't get to part four. We'll just go to part three. But we were dialing in on eight words or phrases that Jesus uses to differentiate people who were actually disciples from people who thought they were disciples but really weren't. Jesus makes it very clear. He warns us that not everybody who thinks they're an authentic follower of Jesus actually is. And so we don't want to be those kinds of people who think we're following Jesus. And we run into him at the judgment day and and, and we we say, Lord, Lord, we've done all these things. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. So to get after that, we've tried to really dial into eight words or phrases that accurately describe who a disciple is and what a disciple does. We've been talking about who a disciple is. I want to talk to you today about what a disciple does. And the two words for today are seek and save. Uh, Let me read to you the two passages of Scripture. One, they're both in the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament, third book in. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. This is where we get these words from. This is what Jesus says. If he had a mission statement, This could probably be his mission statement. Here's what Jesus says, speaking of himself. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to do two things, to seek and to save those who are lost. I would suggest to you this. If you want to get close to anybody, you need to do what they're doing. My son is three. He'll be four on Saturday. He's in this season of life where anything that he knows I'm about to do, he wants to come along. It's cute sometimes. I would like to eventually be able to take a shower without him like just climbing in. Hey, can I join you? Sure, but not fully clothed. Let's work on it. <laughs> if I go to take out the trash, I have to tell him, Chase, I'm going to go outside and take out the trash. Can I come along? Sure. <laughs> this will change in time, I realize. Yesterday, I went to a basketball game. Dad, can I come along? Sure. Come along. And the more time that he spends with me, it's kind of humbling to see how many of my mannerisms and habits, both good and bad, he picks up on. And I could talk more about that, but I just want to make the point that if you want to walk really close to Jesus, if you really want to be intimate with Christ, if you want to get close and model his behavior, do what he's doing. And you know what he's doing still? Seeking and saving those who are lost. So it brings me to a parable that Jesus, that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. I'll read you the whole parable. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7 say this, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. How would you like to be referred to as not just a sinner, but a notorious sinner? They often came to listen to Jesus teach, which is fascinating. That whole sentence is fascinating. In Jesus' day, the most vile of the vile in their society, and they got that label from the religious people, they actually were attracted to Jesus. And I wonder if the church today is a place where people who are living outside of a relationship with Jesus feel attracted to or repelled by. 
But back then, they were attracted to Jesus. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Heavenly Father, we invite your presence to open up our minds and our hearts so we can receive everything that you've intended for us today. Holy Spirit, I need your help today to make sure I communicate accurately with the right words, the right tone, and the right spirit. Everything I feel you've deposited in my heart today, we ask your blessing upon us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. So now I'm thinking about when I was back in Georgia. I had, when I was in Georgia, um, for about five years, because of where Kendra and I were working at the time, the church I was serving at and where she had a job, I drove 90 minutes each way to work. I lived 90 minutes um, from the church where I was serving in Columbus, Georgia. And um, about halfway through my commute every morning, my habit was to stop um, at the drive-thru at McDonald's about the halfway point and get a coffee. And on one particular morning, it was really windy, I rolled down my window to get a coffee, and uh, they gave me the coffee, and I was paying with cash because, you know, Dave Ramsey, and so I'm paying with cash, right? And um, they give me my change, and it was windy, and the, the, one of the, you know, the dollar that they gave me, the paper money blew out of my hand, and it blew in between the driver's seat and the center console, of my car. Have you ever had anything fall down there that you wanted to go after? Sometimes there's some of you that things fall down there you don't want to go after, and you leave them for your husband to vacuum out later, but I'll deal with that at home this afternoon. But um, so the dollar bill flies out of my hand into that like no man's land, um, which if you watch Shark Tank, somebody came along and fixed this problem um, and invented this thing you can put there to keep stuff from falling there, but they didn't have Shark Tank back then. So the dollar was like between my seat. And I got to tell you, this bothered me. There's a lot of things that could fall down there I wouldn't think of again, even a coin, but paper money to me is different than coins. Paper money, just for whatever reason, because you, know you know what you can buy with a dollar? Not much. So, um, <laughs> so I'm driving the next 45 minutes to work, and as I'm driving, you know, I'm drinking my coffee, and with the right hand, I'm looking to try and get the dollar. I can kind of see it. So like, you know, I'm trying to get the dollar, I'm drinking my coffee. I don't know how I was steering, but I was, you know, I was getting there somehow. And I'm, the closer my fingers get to the dollar, the more I'm pushing it under the seat until it actually escaped my view and went the whole way under my seat. There was nothing more I could do. So I get to work and I was just right on time. So I went inside to my office. I have to be honest with you. I'm a little embarrassed about this. All morning long, every time my mind wasn't focused on something, I was thinking about that dollar. <laughs> it was under my seat. It was not in my wallet. It could not be spent where it was and it needed to be recovered. And um, I waited all morning. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm trying to stay focused. But finally, noon o'clock came, which was my lunch break. So at noon, I left the office and I drove down to Goo Goo Car Wash in Columbus, Georgia, because it's the home of free vacuums. So I thought, you know, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to get this dollar out one way or another. And, you know, the way you access the vacuums is by spending $10 to get your car washed. So I spent $10 to get, this is why I'm not a stockbroker. So I spent, you know, I spent $10 to get a free, you know, $1 vacuum. So I get out of the car, and the first thing that I do is I, I, I look down and I see where the dollar is, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to reach it this way. I get down on my hands and knees in the parking lot, and I'm like, I realize this is not probably the best image of your pastor this morning, but I am like shoulder deep trying to get under my seat, trying to get this dollar 
but I couldn't reach it from the front of the seat. So I go in the back, I couldn't reach it. It was in like the no man's land where you can't get it from the front or the back. And so I'm like, I have got to get this dollar out of here. I've got my hands going through all tight, and I'm an OCD, and I do not like to get any dirt on me at all. My hands are going through the, just the under, soft underbelly of all those unknown things underneath the driver's seat of the car. I found all kinds of stuff, pens, paper clips. Why I would ever bring a handful of paper clips in my car, I'm not sure, but they were under there. And so I'm, I'm like, you know, excavating all this stuff. I couldn't get the dollar. So I'm like, I have got to take this to another level. I get out my smartphone and I go on to Google and I Google how to get a dollar out from under your car seat. And I shouldn't need to say this, but I will. True story. Um, and I find this YouTube video that shows how to do this with, and what they say is take one of these vacuum cleaners, which I'm at, tape the vacuum nozzle completely closed. And for some reason I had packing tape in my trunk. So I tape the whole thing closed. And that says take a straw and punch it through. And it makes this little tiny like mini nozzle. And I had a straw from McDonald's. So I'm like, this is perfect. I take that thing under the seat. It sucks that dollar bill right in. I pull it, I take that dollar bill out. And I'm like, yeah. I start like celebrating outside my car and like everybody else is like, dude, what did you find? What did you find? I'm like, a dollar. And they're like, are you serious? <laughs> I'm like slapping people with high fives. I'm like going around the parking lot, like trying to get the crowd to get out of their seat. I get back in my car and I had a dollar and I'm headed to Wendy's for the value menu to celebrate. And I am like, I have this moment where I'm like, what in the world is wrong with me? I lost my mind over a dollar. I got down on my hands and knees to find a dollar. I put my hands into some nasty stuff to find a dollar. I could not get my mind off of that dollar. And I just started feeling embarrassed. And then this thought came to me. When was the last time I got on my hands and knees for the lost? When was the last time I was willing to roll up my sleeves and get myself a little bit dirty in the mess of a life of somebody? who was lost. The truth is, I, even as a pastor, I recognize in that moment there are some things way out of whack in my life. And I asked God to forgive me. And I asked him to help me have a deeper heart, like what Mike said, to love people and to love the lost. And he brought me to this passage. So I just want to share with you a few thoughts because I know that we're a little short on time this morning. I just want to share with you a few thoughts from this passage because I recognize, and it's our big idea this morning, the great shepherd It's in your notes if you have them there in front of you. The big idea is that the great shepherd has not given up on his mission to seek and save those who are lost, and neither should his authentic disciples. The great shepherd has not given up on his mission to seek and save lost people, and neither should authentic disciples. So even before we get into the parable, there's these two sentences that we have in the Gospel of Luke that tell us who Jesus was talking to and why he told the story. Jesus did not tell stories for no reason. I have some relatives who tell stories for absolutely no reason. My uncle Bill tells these stories all the time. They're rabbit trails. Every time it's about how he had to walk to school and this kind of weather, uphill both ways, and every time the snow gets higher and the walk gets farther. I don't know why he tells these stories. Jesus never just told stories for story's sake. 
He told them in specific seasons for specific reasons. And I want to draw your attention to what's going on here. Let me read verses 1 and 2 to you again. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners were gathering around Jesus. They often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. Tax collectors and notorious sinners. I want you to notice the prejudice of the church in this story. They were prejudiced. The religious people, the godly people of this day and age, the people who had the Old Testament, the people who followed the covenant, the people who followed all the sacrifices and the offerings, they had prejudice against tax collectors and who they called notorious sinners. They were upset that these people came to Jesus. Here's a question. Why in the world would they be angry when they saw this? Why would a religious person be angry to see a morally flawed person, as though they were so holy, come to Jesus? Why did that bother them so much? Why did they even care that the notorious sinners came to Jesus? Well, Luke tells us. They were upset for two reasons. First of all, that Jesus would associate himself with them. It bothered them that Jesus, who claimed to be, well, they thought Jesus was trying to be like them. And in their mind, somebody like us would never associate with somebody like them. Now, who were the tax collectors and the notorious sinners? We don't know. We know what a tax collector was. They weren't poor. They were wealthy. They were what we would call the up and outers. They were greedy. They were schemers. They manipulated rules and laws and power to make more money. And then you have other notorious sinners. We don't know who they were. They were just notorious. So here's my question. Who would that be in our context today? Who would the tax collectors and the notorious sinners be in our context this morning? What stereotypical group of sinners, in your mind, disgust you? Well, pastor, nobody disgusts me. Would you let God probe your heart today? Because maybe that's true. But I'm afraid that for many of us, if we were painfully honest, there are still people and kinds of people that disgust us, that we don't want to associate with. The second thing he says is he actually eats with them. He doesn't just associate with them, he eats with them. And notice something else. These Pharisees and tax collectors were muttering loud enough that the people that were coming to Jesus heard what they were saying about them within eyesight and earshot of these notorious sinners, the religious people, the ones who had the answers, the ones who had the solution, won't even call them by their name, they call them by their deeds. Well, maybe they didn't know their name. Seriously? If they knew what they were up to and they were notorious, they probably knew their name. But they wouldn't even call them by their name. They called them by their deeds. They called them by the name of their sin. Have we matured in 2,000 years? Have we moved any farther away from it? It's easy for us to read this story and hammer down on the Pharisees for how lousy they were and how prejudiced they were. But can we search our own hearts this morning? The great deficiency of the church is not money. Our great challenge in reaching the lost is not buildings. It's compassion for lost people. That's our great challenge. 
So Jesus tells this story to kind of defend himself. And I realize Jesus didn't need to defend himself. He was the son of God. But he tells this story to explain where in the world would you, if Jesus was everything he said he was, where would you expect to find him? Who would you expect him to associate himself with? Who would you expect him to eat with? He says, I'm on a mission to seek and save the lost. And he tells the story of the parable of the lost sheep to illustrate to the Pharisees and the religious people why he and why all of us should not be afraid to go after and seek and save and associate with and eat with people. Here's the thing. What wasn't Jesus doing and what was he doing with the sinners and the notorious and the, you know, the notorious sinners and the tax collectors? What wasn't he doing? Well, he wasn't sinning with them, was he? He wasn't concocting business schemes with the tax collector to win them over. He wasn't soliciting the prostitutes so he could witness to them. He wasn't throwing shots back with the alcoholics so that he could get into their world. That's what he wasn't doing. And I want you to understand that's not an evangelistic tactic that God blesses. He never asks us to adopt sinful behaviors to reach lost people. But he does encourage us to reach into their lives and associate them and eat with them. Well, pastor, how do I? I don't want to associate with that. Let me ask you a question. Think of the person right now. Imagine the face of a person in your life that you would hate to lose. You might have multiple people. Think of one person right now in your mind, the face of one person that if you lost them, if they died, if they were taken from you, that it would devastate you the most. Do you have it? Now, I want you to imagine for the sake of the, for just for this illustration that there is an Olympic-sized swimming pool filled with raw, unprocessed sewage. Everybody hungry? <laughs> and that that person is drowning in the middle of it. If my wife is in the middle of a pool of raw, unprocessed sewage and she's drowning... I'm not going to think twice about jumping in that pool and swimming out to her and rescuing her. And when I get to her, we're not going to play Marco Polo. We're not going to just play some games and swim around. We're going to get out. I'm going to take multiple showers until I can totally detoxify myself from everything I just swim. You understand sometimes you have to get into things not to play around in it. You have to pull people out of it. That's the balance between saying, well, I use this as a way to reach out to people. Mm -mm. Now you're going in there to play and make yourself feel better. Jesus says the shepherd's willing to leave the 99 and go to God knows where if there's a sheep stuck there somewhere. So what do we know about the parable of the lost sheep? Let me give you a few brief things. First of all, notice the thought of the shepherd. The thought of the shepherd. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Here's what the shepherd's thinking. Here's what he's thinking. A sheep is lost. That's what's running through a shepherd's mind. The sheep was his property. The only thought that he has is that a sheep is lost. I, you know, I have one child, so it's not, I know immediately when he's not with me. If you have multiple children, sometimes you have to count when you're at the amusement park in the mall. I take missions trips every now and again. My, and every time I go, uh, I've been to Haiti six times since I've been here, and the first time I had a group of, like, I don't remember how many were with us, Mike, maybe 20 people roughly, and I always assign everybody a number. These are grown-ups, but grown-ups are no easier to keep track of than children, let me just tell you. And I, you know, gave them all the same number, and every day it's like I wanted to count one through 20, one through 20. And what I noticed about the third day is that a female was always number 10, and it always changed, and I couldn't figure out why the identity of number 10 kept changing. I finally, about the fourth day, I said, why is number 10 changing every day? And they're like, well, all the girls want a chance to be a 10. 
So I now do all male missions trips because I'm just <laughs> ill-equipped to deal with that kind of drama. So imagine the shepherd, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, all right, sheep stand still, we're going to do this. Like, how would you like to try and count 100 sheep? Like, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 96, 97, 98, 99, one is met, we've got a lost sheep. If you've ever been around a parent who thinks or who actually has lost a child, they go from zero to 100 just like that. It is no different with a shepherd. Not only does the shepherd know that he's short a sheep, he knows which sheep. He knows which sheep it is. I don't know whether it was the one with the gimpy leg or the one with the patch behind his ear or the one that you know, always veered off to the right. I don't know, but he knew which one. You know what else the shepherd is thinking? And I want to say this as delicately as I can. A sheep is a rather stupid, defenseless animal. Sheep are not on the high end of the intelligence level for animals. And actually, sheep is the animal most constantly compared to you and me. Um, Do you know that a sheep, and I don't know this, I had to research this, sheep do not have an internal homing mechanism. If they get lost even by a few feet, they will not find their way back. I had uh, pets in, in Atlanta, and one night one of them got out, and after two days it found its way home had a homing mechanism and knew how to get back home. Sheep do not have this. If a sheep, this is why shepherds have to be right on the sheep because they always want to go their own way. They don't know that they're lost yet, but if they get this far off course, they can't find their way back. That's why we need to follow the shepherd closely and not take rabbit trails. He's also thinking this sheep, he's pretty defenseless. You don't see a whole lot of YouTube videos on when wild sheep attack. If you happen to find one today, please don't send it to me. I will take your word for it, okay? (laughs) If a sheep gets attacked by anything, it can't defend itself. And the shepherd's mind, it's like, you know, if my three-year-old wanders off, he he can't defend himself. He can't go find food. He can't build shelter. The thought of the shepherd is that there are... 99 sheep here, but one is lost. And in that moment, he's not as focused on the 99 as he is on the one. Can I tell you, as a pastor, I understand that. I'm thankful that we have a full house today. But I already sat down and jotted down. I know there's four people I was expecting today that I didn't. Your mind always goes to. Your mind always goes to those we might be missing. It's not like you pray to have that happen. It's just the switch that I wish you could turn it off sometimes. You know, but it's just there whenever somebody that's close to you is missing. You're thankful for the 99, but your mind always goes to the one. Friend, I don't care how big Echo grows. If we get to a point where we no longer care about the one, then may God deal with us ever so severely. This is not about our pride. This is not about our ego. This is not about putting some great pictures up on Facebook of, although we probably will, of, you know, uh, you know, of this morning and, uh, and our celebration together. There's still empty seats in here. We'll go find more chairs. There are still lost people that may not ever come through that door first. But you might cross paths with them first. When we get to the place where the one no longer matters, we've lost the heart and the thought of the shepherd. He had great compassion on them. Here's the sad thing. (laughs) That's the thought of the shepherd. This is not in your notes. But what about the thought of the sheep? All this is going on and the sheep isn't thinking about the shepherd at all. In fact, the sheep may not even know that it's lost yet. I will not tell too many incriminating stories about myself, but there have been times that I have been lost and my wife realized it long before I admitted it. We did not agree on the definition of my lostness. Do you understand that some of the people that are on your heart right now don't even agree with you on the definition of their own lostness? 
the hardest people to reach are the ones who don't think they're lost. But how do you respond to that? I mean, this parable basically tells me there's three different ways that we respond to people's lostness. We look at their lostness and we see their lostness and we're moved with love and compassion. That's the action of the shepherd. We look at people and we see their lostness and we get disgusted. That's the reaction of the Pharisees and the religious teachers. Then there's a third category, which is just as bad. We look at people and don't even see their lostness and we feel nothing. That's apathy. And apathy and disgust are not the heart of the shepherd, but love and compassion are the heart of the shepherd. And we all have room to go, and I have room to go. Different people move us different ways. I will tell you, I went to Haiti, and I wept for weeks over seeing all these poor children. And, I just, and I'm not a crier, but I cried and cried and cried until I couldn't cry anymore. And I get off the airplane on the way home, and I'm walking by all these lost people who don't move me at all. There's different people that I have tolerance for and some that I don't. I mean, I, I'm searching my own heart as preparing this message, and I'm thinking, you know, there are people that I have disgust for, you know, and, you know, I think some different categories of people don't bother me, but the person who brushes by me on the airplane on their $600 phone and their $2,000 suit, like I don't exist to get to their $70,000 car and drive to their $2 million home and look down on me as someone who's not their place in life, like I don't even deserve to be acknowledged or apologized to, that disgusts me. And it shouldn't, but it does. And that person needs... If they know Jesus, they're really fooling me. But I mean, if that person, you know, that type of people that won't even acknowledge that I exist because they don't think I'm on their same level, that bothers me. And I have a hard time finding compassion for that. And God needs to break that because we all need a savior. And his name is Jesus. And his new strategy wasn't to keep Jesus on the earth as a human being because he could be at one place at one time. He could heal people. He could preach. But he said, my new strategy and the way you'll see greater things is if I go away and send my spirit and populate all of you with the same heart that was in the great shepherd, what could all of us do that one person couldn't do in and of himself? That's our mission. That's our assignment. So the thought of the shepherd is that. The search of the shepherd is number two. So that's what the shepherd is thinking. Here's what the shepherd is doing. The search of the shepherd. Luke 15, 4. Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? You see, the search is a definite search. He is not just looking for any old animal. He's looking for a specific sheep. A specific sheep. Friend, if you are here today and you are starting to recognize that you're lost, it is not a coincidence that that school shut down that we're here this morning. It is not a coincidence that you decided to, however you found out about us, that you're here today. I want you to know, since the beginning of time, Jesus has been searching for you. And he searched not just for random people, for you specifically. I had moments with some of you in this room. I remember, you know, Adam, I remember when... (laughs) When you accepted Jesus at Mission Barbecue, I mean, that's a godly place to begin with, but I mean, you know, that, that made him... I remember praying with you outside that room. I remember at Perry Hall High School. I don't want to embarrass him. There's another young man here this morning. I remember exactly where we were standing in the auditorium. It was like in this aisle right here, and he came right up to me, and he said, he said, I need you to pray with me. I need to make my life right with God. And that young man surrendered his life to Jesus, married a godly young woman. They're here this morning starting their marriage off the right way. He was searching for specific people. Do you remember when he came and found you? Do you remember that? Don't ever lose the joy. I remember where I was when I got saved. I remember I knelt. I got down on my knees at a pew and someone put their hand on me. And I remember when I prayed, I felt, I didn't even, I felt like a thousand bricks came unpiled from me. I didn't even know we're there. 
I remember that. It's a definite search. It's a specific search. It's also an all-absorbing search. You understand the shepherd says, a sheep is lost. I need to go carb up and take a nap, and then we're going to get after it. That's my son out there, by the way. I'm sorry about that. He's lost right now. He is, he is, he's, apparently, we're not going out to McDonald's afterwards. Things are, the wires are coming off of the wagon. But um, he, it's an all-absorbing search. He doesn't say, you know what? Let me straighten up the house first. Let me get the right clothes on. He goes right away. If my son is lost, I'm not going to be like, you know, I, I really need to get after him, but I need to have a delicious meal first. He doesn't think of anything other. He doesn't rest while there's a lost sheep. A good shepherd... I would think differently of God if he rested. Because I know this might not be theologically correct, but here's the way I think of it. You know, the Bible promises us, tells us, encourages us, God never sleeps or rests. How could he while there's lost sheep? How could he? How could he? It's an all-absorbing search. It is an active search. He goes himself. He, it's a personal search. He doesn't send somebody else. He doesn't say, you know what, um, I am the shepherd. I'm going to send a hireling. I'm going to send a junior shepherd. I'm going to send an intern. You go after the sheep. The shepherd says, you guys take care of the sheep. I'm going to go. Outsourcing the ministry of lost people is not the job of the church. Do you hear me? This is not something we wait for someone. Well, I'm just not a gifted evangelist. Friend, if you, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, he's put inside you all the DNA you ever, ever need. It's called your personality. It's going to help you share your faith. In fact, that's what we're going after for six weeks in growth groups. If you haven't signed up for one yet, sign up for one out there. We're going to take you through the nuts and bolts, the how-tos, all of our groups saying the same thing for six weeks. We're going to equip you to be more confident in sharing your faith through your unique personality. If you're an introvert, God uses introverts. If you're someone who likes to just talk to, talk people's ear off, that's me. God uses us too, somehow, some way. If you're someone who likes to just serve people, there's all kinds of illustrations in the Bible about how God used people's natural. Who gave you your personality? God did. Who gave you the assignment? God did. He's going to use them both together. We want to lower that rung of the ladder so that we can all get excited about this. Can you imagine what God would do? And I can't, I need to slow down. I'm talking way too fast for my brain to keep up. Do you know what God would do through any church whose people just get fired up about being broken for lost people and have confidence in sharing their faith. Can you imagine what's going to happen? Can you imagine what's going to happen? I'm going through this course right with you because I'm leading one. I'm going through it. I want to learn. That's the search of the shepherd. It's a personal search. It's a search of perseverance. How long does he seek for the sheep? It tells us how long. Eight hours, 12 hours, 14 hours? Until what? Until he finds it. Can I encourage you this morning? You might be dealing with some unsavable people in your life. I have some family members. Kendra and I have siblings that are lost. They know they're lost. They're proud of it. (laughs) In my mind, I'd be like, man, they are unsavable. They don't hear a word that I say. Don't give up. While they are still breathing, there's still hope. But I also want to say this. Once we die, it's too late. Life is incredibly brief. I want to make sure that everybody within the sound of my voice today has the opportunity to be ready to meet Jesus when they die. That the great shepherd, the great shepherd seeks for people until he finds them. It's a successful search, isn't it? He seeks and seeks and seeks until he finds them. And I think about it in my mind's eye this way. This sheep has wandered off, and for a while it was a great adventure, and he's going over valleys and up hills and down paths. But then he takes a wrong turn, and he ends up in a thorn bush. And in my own mind, I think about the sheep and the story of like, he's trying to get himself out of the bush. And, and, and every time that he tries to free himself, the more 
the more that bush just wraps around him and he can't get out, he can't get himself out of what he got himself into. Have you ever been in that place in life? You got yourself into something quite easily but could not get yourself out as easy. You needed someone who wasn't stuck in the bush to cut you free. And I think about the shepherd who finally finds this sheep. He starts cutting thorn after thorn after thorn after thorn away, thinking nothing of the scars he's getting on his own arms and hands, thinking nothing of his own safety, thinking nothing about how much pain he's in. He's just overcome with a sense of urgency because he found a sheep that's trapped. And then we go to the third thing, the burden of the shepherd, the burden of the shepherd. When he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Here's what I love. You know what the shepherd doesn't do when he finds the sheep? Does the shepherd give the sheep a lecture? You dumb sheep. I told you not to get and pull the thorn out. There's no, there's no lecture. There's no rebuke. Some of us are waiting on getting right with God because we're bracing for the rebuke. We're bracing for the scolding. We're bracing for the I told you so and you shouldn't have. This is not our great shepherd. In fact, what does he do for the sheep? Does he say, all right, I got you out of there. Now you march back to the rest of the sheep. What does he do? He picks that sheep up and he puts that sheep on his shoulders. He transfers the burden and the weight of the sheep for getting back to him, not the sheep. And he says, I'll walk you back. Because right now he's, he might not even be running back. He might just be walking back because he's, he's excited to get the sheep back with the others, but he's most excited about that sheep being back with him. He lifts that sheep up and puts him on his shoulders. That's what salvation is supposed to feel like. It's a lifting up experience. Salvation isn't about pushing you down. Getting right with God isn't about pushing you down, reminding you what's wrong with you. It's about lifting you up and saying, let me carry with you. I don't care how far away that you walked. The moment you start running and let the shepherd pick you up, he will carry you everywhere that you need to go. He's not asking you to figure it out on your own. He does it. You just have to surrender and trust him enough to put put, put you on his shoulders. Let him carry you. The thought of the shepherd, the search of the shepherd, the burden of the shepherd, and then finally, the joy of the shepherd. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Now, this is a tricky verse to a lot of us. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. And I think back to the message Pastor Stewart preached about, which I probably could give you all the points off the top of my head, one of the best, one of the best messages on the, the best message of the parable of the two sons I've ever heard in my life. Um, and he talks about the other brother, the brother who didn't run away, and the brother who stayed with the father, who gets so bent out of shape when the prodigal son who went off and did his own thing comes back home and they all want to celebrate. Well, you kind of see that same dynamic here. You've got the one sinner who comes back and there's more joy, it says, over that one than in that moment than over the 99 others. And the, the 99 others who are kind of us are saying, well, that's not really fair. I didn't go run away. I stayed here all the time. I paid my tithe. I served on a ministry team. I went to church every Sunday, whether I wanted to or not. I stood during the songs, whether I knew them or not. I didn't roll my eyes as much this week. How come God has more joy? Listen, first of all, you need to get over yourself. If you have five children, I was thinking of the Barlow's, you have four. So, you know, you have four children. Let's suppose one of those four children is given a diagnosis of a terminal disease. And for all intents and purposes, they have a few weeks to live. 
And in your mind, you're preparing for them to be lost. But let's suppose a month into this, a miracle happens, and the doctor comes back and says, I don't know what happened, but your child is disease-free, and we speak it over Sophia in the name of Jesus, who is here this morning, thanks to your prayers, who is here this morning. Little baby Sophia is here today. But let's suppose God comes, or let's suppose the doctor comes back to the parents and says, guess what? This child who you thought was going to be lost is now disease-free. They're going to live. Is there something inappropriate in that moment about them being more thrilled and having more joy over that child they thought they were going to be lost than over those other kids? You see, what happens is when something is lost, the joy you have for them pauses and it gets dammed up. Because in that moment, you're not feeling joy. When the sheep is lost, the shepherd's not feeling joy. He has joy over the other 99. But in that moment, the joy he feels with this other one is, it's not gone, it's just stunted. It's stopped, it's paused. But all that joy doesn't go away. It just builds up because you see, God has so much joy he wants to share with you that we just resist. It doesn't disappear. It just backs up and builds up. And then in that moment, when we finally accept him, he finds us again, this, this panic and this fear immediately disappears. What was lost is found. And then the dam breaks and all the joy that had been stored off. There's more joy cascading in that one moment over that one sheep than over the other 99 who in that moment are living in the joy of the shepherd. They've been doing the right thing, but in that moment, it's just cascading. out. Do you understand that's how heaven feels every time someone comes home? All the joy of heaven is released. That's why when we find Jesus Christ, we find joy. We find value. We find significance. We feel lifted up. That's the joy of the shepherd. I want to leave you with one quote. One of my favorite authors is um, Charles Spurgeon. And uh, he was back like in the 1800s. And um, just to be completely transparent, a lot of times when I'm done with my message, I will, I will look into, I have a pretty large library of his works. I will look into what he wrote about a topic and try and clarify my thoughts. And he writes extensively about this particular parable. He's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thinker. And he leaves this quote, and I want to share it with you this morning. You and I ought to seek after a soul how long? Why, until we find it. For such is the model set before us by the master. Echo was not planted in this area to be a monument for church, for Christianity. Echo was planted in this area to help us seek and save those who were lost. That's why we do what we do. That's why Chris Corelli, who was up on a roof for 78 hours this week shoveling snow for his company, comes here on Sunday morning brings in the presence of God and stands up here and leads us selflessly and humbly in worship every single week. It's because of his presence and because we're trying to reach lost people. That's why Paul Maldives and Alan Watts and Jonathan Epperson and Brian Griswold and, and I'm going to leave people out when I start naming people. But that's why these people are so kamikaze committed to what goes on here. That's why our welcome team came in today and do what they do. That's why, our, that's why Paul took a shovel yesterday and went over and spent 30 minutes digging out the trailer. It wasn't because of his commitment to fill an hour. It's because he wants to seek and save lost people. And that's what he can do to help us get after it. So here's my two questions to leave with you this morning. Number one, are you ready should death come knocking on the door for you today? That's kind of morbid, but it's the, it's, the, it's the question I have to leave with you. If you are feeling lost, if you know you're not right with God, if you've gotten yourself into something you can't get yourself out of, here's what Jesus provides for you. He provides for you hope of something better. 
He provides for you a changed life. And what he asks of us is simply to acknowledge that he exists, acknowledge that we've fallen short of the standard, acknowledge we can't do life of our own, repent for our sins, and accept him as both our Lord, which means he's the king and gets to decide everything that we do, and our Savior, the one who lifts us up and gives us new life. Many, many, many of us have had that experience in our life, and it does not make us perfect people. We are still sinners, but we are saved by grace. It's not because of anything that you do. You can't earn it. That's a relief. You don't have to memorize a certain amount of scriptures, go to a certain amount of church services, give a certain amount of money. If it was about that, we could brag and say, well, I've done more than this person. No, no, no. It's, all, it's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done. Are you ready? Should today be your last day on this earth? Are you ready to meet Jesus? My second question, if you say, I am ready, here's my question. Will you join the shepherd in his seek and save mission? Will you join him? Will you join him in his seek and save mission? Can I invite the worship team to come back? We're going to close our service right here. Will you be willing to get down on your hands and knees and pray for the lost? Will you invite God to break your heart for lost people? Will you join me in repenting for our apathy, for our disgust for people? Not all people. You might be much more sanitized in your walk than I am. I will tell you, I have made lots of progress in this area. I, I am so cynical by nature. But I will tell you this, God is a good teacher. He is patient with us. And I can see progress in my own life. I'm starting to find patience in my life for people I used to have no patience for. I'm finding love in my heart for people I used to have a hard time even liking. God's helping me. He's changing me. It's almost like a transplant. It's almost like there's a new heart coming alive inside of me that's not my heart, but it beats like the shepherd's heart. That's what happens when we get saved. You get the spirit of God fused with your spirit and everything that he is comes alive inside of us and helps transform us into the people that we could be that we can never make ourselves into. So if you're living in, a, in, in right relationship with God today, can I encourage you? Let's get after seeking and saving the lost. Let that one name or face that's been burning in your mind all morning become your personal mission this week. If you're intimidated by this search and you say, I'm just not equipped to do it, choose a growth group and let us pour into you for just six weeks, just six weeks. Yes, it's an extra time commitment. Yes, it might be another day or night during the week, but I can't think of, and we, we really value education in this area. We go, we get all, some of you have more, you have so many degrees. You're so smart, so much smarter than me. And, but is there nothing as valuable as being comfortable and confident in knowing what is in this book and how we can apply it to our lives. I'm just inviting you to take six weeks if you haven't chosen to do so already and let us equip you to be more confident in sharing your faith to seek and save the lost.